Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Hi, Dr. Easley. This is Kelly. Hi, this is uh, Terry. I'm in Frisco, Texas. Hey, Michael. This is Ryan. Hello, my name is Karen. This is Royce. I'm from Northern Virginia. My question is about deception. My question for Dr. E deals with the parable of the big tree. I am calling with an end-of-life question. Why do people say that God will provide all the time? Thoughts on predestination. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and today we are premiering our very first episode of this crazy idea we had called Ask Dr. E. So, Dr. E, <laughs> how you doing? Well, you said premiering our first one. So Thank you. <laughs> I was caught there. It, it's redundant and repetitive. Thanks for... The restatement uh, is good. Restatement is good. Thanks for catching me. Well, sorry. It's, you know, that's who I am. <laughs> yeah, th- this is really your idea. Well, and a friend of ours from Ramsey Productions, Eric. True. Yeah. True. So, but I appreciate the opportunity, and I was shocked how many people have called and emailed. We were both kind of, whoa. We've gotten a lot of calls. Yeah. And it's been really fun listening through <laughs> what folks are curious about. Yep, yep, yep. So, you want to jump into this right away? Yeah, let's get started. So, our first question is from a guy named Terry, and we're going to let Terry ask his question. Hi, this is uh, Terry. I'm in Frisco, Texas. My question for Dr. E deals with the parable of the fig tree in Matthew uh, uh, 24, 32. My question deals with the statement by the Lord about, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Which or what generation is um, the Lord talking about? Uh, deals, of course, with you know, the fig tree being uh, Israel, and when it gets tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is. So is that when Israel is fully, you know, all the people are back and it's doing very, very well, or is it when the fig tree was planted back at the uh, 1948 when uh, Israel was reestablished? Anyway, I'm very curious what Dr. E uh, thinks about this term generation. When do we start counting? If we count at all, <laughs> uh, counting the years, that is. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to ask. Goodbye now. Terry, thanks. That's a great question, Hannah. I mean, number one, I'm impressed with a lot of these people. What they're asking is, is some pretty deep stuff. Yeah, and I'm immediately, I was listening to this voicemail going, oh, I never understood the big tree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is going to be great. Well, let me read the passage that Terry's referring to, and then let's take a run at it. So Matthew 24, verses 29 to 34. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until these things take place. Let's go back to Terry's question. This is arguably one of the more complicated passages that anybody could have picked. Uh, there, number one, there are no shortages of guesses. And I mean guesses, whether it's a scholar or a Bible reader. Uh, number two, I want to focus on the fig tree lesson because I think context if you've heard me say that once or twice, maybe, <laughs> I think context solves so many questions. Why has Jesus set this answer up about a fig tree illustration? In Matthew's gospel, this is a beginning a series of parables that Jesus is teaching along the way. And so this fig tree was, this was a duh to the first century here. When they heard him talk about a fig tree and when it starts to bud, you know, the seasons are changing. Of course, slap your forehead with your hand, okay? Of course, I got this. Now, keeping that in mind, then he says, when this future thing comes, you're going to know it. It's going to be, duh, you're going to see it just like you see the seasons changing. Now, the interpretation I would narrow down from a long list to two possibilities. The first one Some think Jesus was talking specifically to the Jewish audience. If that's correct, and we extrapolate, then he's talking to Jews as a race slash nation of people, and they would not be eliminated. And Terry references that when he talks about 1948 and Israel being reestablished. And, of course, you could make that argument. Uh, My sense is a little bit more generic with number one, that Jesus is saying the Jewish people Uh, under this view, would not be eliminated until this thing came to fruition. A second, and I'm grouping a lot of opinions about this passage, but the second one to me is that generation applies to a broader context of Matthew, meaning the generation at the end time, which is why I read verses 29 and following, because he's talking about when the Son of Man appears in the sky, when the tribes of the earth will mourn, they'll see the Son of Man coming. And I have you know, strong Christian friends who would disagree this is even talking about a tribulation period, the eschaton, the eschatology section. I disagree with that. So I'm going to lean toward the generation means a broader generation at the end of time. Again, it's a tough question. It's a tough passage. And uh, as a complicated passage, we don't always have the easy answer we'd like to have. So you're saying that that generation would be the generation of folks that are living at that time when Christ appears in the sky. Correct, That's what correct. you're saying. The, okay. the generation word, a lot of scholars will go lots of places with that word. I think they overstep the bounds of language there. So the broader context of Matthew was in 29 and following at the end of time. Hmm. So when those things take place, which is the duh, everybody knows that right. they're going to recognize, oh, something's happening here. That generation will not pass away until these things, meaning the eschaton, uh-huh. take place. And, I mean, we don't need to jump to these other passages, but would you say that that idea kind of works? I feel like a lot of times when the apostles were writing their letters, it seemed like, I mean, they really believed that Christ was coming back in their lifetime. Absolutely, the imminent return. And, and I think, without a doubt, the first century believer thought this was going to happen on their watch. And so in the immediate context, they probably thought, hey, it's soon, like the next season, he's coming back. And just like we would have. And then the the delay and the delay and the waiting and the Lord's patience and a long view of scripture. And of course, now 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. Right. Well, I love it. Let's move on to our second question from Karen, and we'll let her ask her question. 
Hello, my name is Karen. I live in Franklin, Tennessee. I am calling with an end of life question. I have a father-in-law who is a pastor and um, he has pretty strong opinions about burial versus cremation. And I would love to hear what Dr. E thinks about those two options. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So, Hannah, would you identify with Karen that you have a father that has strong opinions? <laughs> I I don't know if I could ever you identify you with that. that. Wow, okay. wow, that's that is. You know, interestingly, I get this question a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm freaked out about it. So let's I mean let's talk. <laughs> well, it's a common question, and as a person who officiates funerals and meets with families when someone's dying, you know, it, number one, this is a huge emotional topic. Yeah. Because when you're talking about the remains of a loved one, uh, I mean, one thing for us old people to die, but when you're burying a child or mm-hmm. a teenager or an accident or trauma and the you know, cremation seems so horrific. Yeah. So let's back up and, and make a couple of observations. Number one, in antiquity and today, Think of someone whose remains were, quote, lost at sea. Okay. Or in a traumatic uh, fire. Sure. A 9-11, the yeah. number of bodies that they never reclaimed. Yeah. There's nothing. There, There's no dental record, nothing yeah. of a person. So from a high theological view, the ancients as well as the moderns would have to acknowledge some people's bodies are, quote, disintegrated. I mean, not literally, but there, there's destroyed. nothing there. Yeah. There's nothing there to bury. Um, and there are there are families that will nevertheless buy a coffin, have a burial vault, yep. spend thousands of dollars to you know have this sense of, of closure yep. to bury that loved one. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just an emotional reality. Now, yep. if we can't recover the remains, uh, what do we do? If a person was burned in a fire, horrible discussion to have, but if they were burned in a fire and there was nothing left but some ash. Now, the idea is, if, if, I'm, if I'm tracking with Karen, uh, it's wrong to volitionally have your body cremated. Sure. All right. So let's go back to an interesting passage. In Deuteronomy 34, this is the first six verses. It's a great story. It's a sad story, but it's a great story. Moses is going to die uh, near Mount Nebo on the top of Mount Pisgah near Jericho. And the Lord comes to him. Now let's take a sidebar for just a second. The Jesus appeared in the Old Testament many times. Right. We call those Christophanies or Theophanies, meaning a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So Jesus comes down and he's talking to Moses. And Moses, of course, is not going to enter the promised land. Right. So God is kind to show him what he would have seen from a distance. Mm. And then Moses dies. And let me read uh, uh, Moses' record in Deuteronomy 34. The Lord said to him, this is a land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give this to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. Time out. That he is Jesus. Crazy. He buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Ah. So this is the servant of the Lord par excellence. The Jews revere Moses because Moses was given the law face to face from Jesus Mm -hmm. on the top of Mount Sinai Mm -hmm. or Sinai as people are pronouncing it today. 
So there's a special relationship between Christ and Moses and the, the Shekinah, the epiphany, he mm -hmm. would glow. Moses spoke to God like a man, no one like Moses before. Yeah. So roll that together. Why does Christ come down and bury his, his servant Moses? I had a dear friend named Dr. Wendell Johnson uh, tell me this a few years back at the uh, burial of Dr. Howard Hendricks mm. at his interment. And he was sharing from this passage and he said, it intrigues me that Jesus saw dignity in the burial hmm. of his servant. Hmm. I was blown away. I had never thought about it in that term, yeah. in those terms. So for me, this gives me um, even more um, you know, uh, solemnity, uh, more conscientiousness about how we conduct funerals. But nobody knows where the burial is. Right. Well, there's a lot of reasons why they'd have gone and worshipped worship his tomb. Moses you know, forever. Right, yeah. they'd have dug up his bones. You know, I mean, people are crazy, which is, you know, another story. So all that to say, Scripture gives us a number of metaphors about death, what death is like. If we go to 2 Corinthians 5, we know that this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heavens. So whether it's a vault, an urn of ashes, a tent is the metaphor, uh, our clothes, our, our appendages are really not who we are, that body will be wholly resurrected, I think Scripture teaches. So whether you're lost at sea, you were lost at 9-11, or you chose to be cremated. So to round this up, Karen, I would just say I try to respect people's passions and views about cremation and burial because it is a very personal family decision. But I would also say, just for my two cents, it doesn't matter mm. whether a person's cremated or buried in a, uh, a, a very expensive coffin and put in a burial vault and put in the ground. Um, at the end of the day, this is a suit of clothes. It's a temporary shelter. We don't live in this body eternally. We have a resurrected body. And if God's able to resurrect bodies from the sea, bodies that were burned beyond recognition, I think he can resurrect a body that was volitionally cremated. Yeah, that makes sense. Both still seem freaky to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, your I mother and I have recently had this conversation about you know we we got to buy the burial plan so our kids aren't saddled with that. And we actually talked about should we be cremated or should we go through a traditional burial? Well, what did y'all decide? Because I thought she told me y'all were going to be cremated. <laughs> well, she may have made a decision <laughs> and not inform me yet. <laughs> It'll save you a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, someone asked me the other day, why Why do you think your parents decided that? And I said, it could be financial. And I said, I don't know. Maybe they want me to wear their ashes around my neck for the rest of my life. I, I didn't ask. I should. I, I heard this crazy story uh, on the news the other day where a person uh, wanted to be cremated and wanted his ashes put in ammunition and shot into the air. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Can't make well, it up. Well. <laughs> To each his okay, own. let's go on to something more important. Okay, we've got Kelly on the line. Hi, Dr. Easley. This is Kelly from Franklin, Tennessee. And my question is about deception and whether or not it's okay to deceive in situations of life and death against an enemy, such as is a mother required to reveal the location of her children uh, to a murderer who's perhaps in the house. I know that's a crazy scenario. hoping nobody ever has it. And I'm basing, I guess, this question on several places in the Bible where we see believers who deceive, such as the midwives in Moses' time. They deceived and said that the women were delivering the children before they could get there. Rahab, when she had despised Tamar, when she deceived Judah, 
both Tamar and Rahab were rewarded um, for their actions of faith, which also involved in part deception. Abraham, you know, uh, omitted that his, uh, Sarah, his half sister, was also his wife. And and in particular question is Joshua. Uh, he was told by the Lord to ambush the people of Ai in Joshua eight two. And Joshua and the Israelites pretended to be retreating to draw out Ai, and uh, there they ambushed them once they drawed them out of the city where they could surround them. So my question is, is it okay in a life-and-death situation to deceive the enemy? Thanks. God bless. Bye. Kelly, those are fantastic questions. And again, from whether we're casually reading the Bible or scholars, there are a lot of opinions about the things that you cited and ticked off. Let's start with Dr. Geisler, one of my former professors. He made this observation. God did not specifically bless Rahab because she lied. Hmm. So let's think about Rahab's situation. She's believed a rumor of this God named Yahweh Elohim. And from whatever story she heard, when the spies came and made an agreement with her, uh, she her, her condition was, I believe in this Yahweh. So let's call her a new or very, or young Christian, if we want to use those terms. So she, he didn't bless her because she lied. He blessed her because she had faith in the name and the person of this Yahweh Elohim. And again, with Tamar, um, God doesn't bless her for her lies. Rather, he blessed her because of her faith. Exodus one twenty one, because the midwives feared God, he, God, established households for them. The text doesn't say because they lied, he blessed them. Secondly, let's think about the midwives lie in order to save the infant's murders. Um, some Bible scholars talk about a higher law and a lower law, a higher law and a human law. And think about murder versus lying about doing my homework. Uh, granted, both are sin, but we have this sort of arbitrary viewpoint. There is a higher law and a lower law. Now let's turn the heat up. There's a higher law of God's law and a lower law of man or governmental authority. So if we go to Romans chapter 13, verse 1, or Titus chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we're not to break governing laws. We're to be in submission to those in authority over us on the, on the planet. But let's go back to this slice of humanity. Um, which one of us uh, could say, I've never lied, I've never sinned, and God used me, and in fact, God blessed me. <laughs> so I think when we get into the ethical dilemma of, you know, did Rahab lie? Yes. Uh, was there another way for Rahab to do it? Which is an intriguing question. Had Rahab told the truth, would God have spared the spies through some other way? Perhaps. But the biblical account, which is one of the cool things about the Bible, it doesn't hide our humanity. It doesn't hide that these people sinned, they struggled, they parsed verbs just like you and I do, and we parse our way through life. We stretch the truth, we stretch the lie a little bit. And so, to me, the highest level is uh, God uses us in our faithfulness, even though we're sinful people. And I think he blessed a lot of these people, not because of their sin, but because they had a great faith in him in spite of their situation. That's a great answer, Dad. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I remember some high school buddies of mine debating this conversation with you years and years ago. And 
That's a good answer. Did we set them straight or not? I can't I remember. Probably yeah. not yeah. with them at their age at that time, but I think now they would all go, yes, that's right, Dr. Uh, do you remember <laughs> coming across you going, how did he, they lied? Yeah. They deceived. Well, because I think the tricky thing is you hear so, well, I heard so much growing up, sin is sin. You know, right. a murderer is no different than a liar. We're all it, immediately levels the playing field. We're on the same, um, what do you say, at the, the the foot at the cross is level. The, gr- the ground at Calvary is level. Yeah. 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 Um, and I have heard people go, well, you know, none of those people, maybe they didn't have to lie. Maybe they didn't allow God the opportunity to right. work in some miraculous right. way. And I think, well, that's nice, but... <laughs> I think just what you were saying in in their humanity, they did what they thought was best at the time, and and no, none of us know what we would do as as she referred to in the call. You know, if if you had to protect your children oh and gosh. to lie oh, to I authorities, you're in a heartbeat, right? Cheat, steal, now, kill. <laughs> now, would you lie about your faith in Christ? No. If yeah. you had a, another religion with a knife to your throat, yeah. you know, not. we don't know. We can say yeah. I'd trust Christ to the end, yeah. but we're human. Yeah. That's good. All right. Royce from one of our favorite places, Northern Virginia, called in and asked the question that everyone likes to chat with you about. This is Royce. I'm from Northern Virginia. I was a member of uh, Emmanuel Bible Church where Michael taught and uh, preached. My question and my comment that I'd like to hear from Dr. Easley is his thoughts on predestination. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I look forward to hearing what he has to say. Bye. Well, you know, Hannah, this is a question we, we've gotten a lot. A lot. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I would guess probably in the last, let's say, if I looked at 12 Sundays of preaching, half those times somebody will come. <laughs> well, and I had, a, I had a friend in town two weekends ago. We were sitting on your back porch, and she goes, okay, let's talk about predestination, Michael. Yeah, yeah. and she's still wrong, but I love her. <laughs> Well, number one, as a, when you come to Christ, you're going to encounter this right sometime in your life. You're going to hear someone talk about free will, predestination, election, double predestination, all these kind of things. And um, it was about my third year after I came to Christ that I encountered this this whole controversy and discussion. Uh, if you're in a BSF or a Precept or a CBS small group, hanging out with friends, if you come from a real reform background, if you come from a, a what's, what's called an Armenian background where they believe you can lose your salvation, all these things get jambalized. So let's, let's take a run at it. Number one, we need a biblical perspective, not a human perspective, meaning some truths of Scripture you have to look at from, a, let's just say, a heavenly lens, not a humanly lens, and you nor I can fathom it. Secondly, the idea of predestination bleeds into fate, determinism, the absence of free will, uh, this issue of so-called double predestination, Romans 9.13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, which Paul is pulling from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. So the idea of predestination, let's reel it in and not run to all these areas right away. So third, let's think about God making choices. God chose Abram. He names him Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. He chooses Moses. He chooses a people group called Israel. He chooses Joshua. He chooses Caleb. Think through every prophet. He chose them. I don't think any prophet was, here I am, send me, until Isaiah was forgiven. Hmm. 
every other prophet's reluctant. Think of Moses backpedaling. Well, I can't. I'm not. I can't speak. Who am I? What do I say? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- think of Jonah. Uh, God called Jonah to go right. He goes left. Uh, there was a reluctance about when God chose these people. My point is, God chose them not because they were good, better, best. He chose them to use them. I think it's humorous that Israel's called a stiff-necked people. Mm. (laughs) God chose a stubborn people group. Uh, Four, from the human lens, ergo, we would conclude God didn't choose other people. Right. And this is when we get into trouble. So then we have to explain why didn't he choose them. And our human lens says, well, we were better, they were worse. Or one of the goofiest theologies I've run into is that God looks down time and he says, okay, I know when uh, Joe or Susan or Fred or Hannah or Michael is going to come to Christ. And so he reels back time and says, I choose you. Hmm. That is what I would call foreordination run amok, meaning we're saying our behavior at some point makes God call us. That, I mean, that breaks apart at so many levels. Right. So let's go back to what the passages say. Let's listen to a few passages. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. By the way, can I just say, I love that phrase, every spiritual blessing. We always want more. <laughs> we got more we can ever access. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Listen again. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if I go back to creation, whether you're old earth or young earth, view, whatever you want to choose, before he set the world in motion, he chose us. Now, that's pretty mind-bending. Yeah. He chose us before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Christ is choosing us before we existed, before the world was a place where we could be sustained. Hmm. He adopted us because of the kind intention of his will, not what we have done, Mm. but the kind intention of what he wanted to do. Uh, Again, 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a chosen race. And we could look at many other passages, but to wind this long, complex uh, conversation down, uh, I like to use the illustration of the arch. And if you've heard me teach... You know, on and off over the years, you've probably heard me use this illustration. It's either uh, attributed to Alan Redpath or J. Vernon McGee. We don't know. I've heard J. Vernon McGee say it on audio, uh, but I've also read that it was attributed to Alan Redpath, and I'm a stickler for giving credit where credit is due. So all of humanity is going along, and they're all going to hell. So envision, you know, these lines of people going over uh, Brooklyn Bridge, and we're all going to hell. Uh, somewhere along the travel, there's an arch over off the side. And the arch says, whosoever will. And some people choose to take a turn and walk through that arch. They have responded to the call of Christ, whosoever will. They've trusted Christ. They're now a believer. Humanity is still going to hell. They're all walking across the bridge. They're going to hell. 
but these arches along the way say whosoever will, whosoever will. At some time after you walk through that arch, you, you've, you've understood your salvation, you understood you're forgiven of your sins, Christ died in your place on your behalf instead of you, you trusted, you believed, you put your faith in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You know you are now saved. You look back on that arch and you contemplate, how did I get saved? Hmm. It wasn't because you and I were smarter. We had an encounter with the living God. We walked through the arch, so to speak. We believed in him. We responded to the call. Now, looking back on that arch, on the back side is inscribed, chosen before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. So what that illustration means to me, and the way I paraphrase it, is that the doctrines of election and predestination have no application except for the believer. So I'm not looking at the backside of the arch, looking at humanity going, who's saved, who's not saved, who's elect, who's unelect, who's chosen, who's not chosen. I'm looking at the front part of the arch going, everybody has the opportunity, whosoever will. Now, now some of my Christian friends disagree with me on that. They think the offer only goes to the chosen, the elect. Right. And we can have that discussion as well. But I think when Jesus says, whosoever will, he wishes none to perish, no, right. not even one. I think the call of salvation is open to all, mm-hmm. but only the elect will respond. Where we get tangled in this mess is we're in the middle of the arch trying to figure it out, Yeah, which is why I love that arch. You got to go <laughs> through the arch and trust Christ. And then when you, oh, by the way, it wasn't because I was better. I had more potential. I was, you know, whatever. Uh, I was born in the right family. No, God plucked us as a brand from the fire. We're all going to hell. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. So fast forward, the doctrine of election and predestination to me, only applying to the believer means when you stumble across this doctrine and you have to grapple with it and come to a conclusion, not what you think, as Hannah's friend thinks, I just don't believe that. Well, fine, you can be wrong. You know? It's not what I believe, it's what Scripture teaches and are you and I willing to submit ourselves to what we do know where the, where the Scripture is clear in those passages that Paul writes in Ephesians? Uh, or, or I, I just think it's hard to parse those out and say, well, the fact that Peter, that Paul said he chose me before the foundation of the world, that didn't really apply. Mm-hmm. That's kind of hard for me to, to parse that out of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's just a struggle in our humanity of, I mean, we have family members that we love that haven't placed their trust in Christ. And the fear, I think it's easy to think about predestination and, and go, what if they're not elect? And, right. and how could my God not choose to save my family that mm-hmm. I want to spend eternity? You know, and I think that's the... It's hard. It's hard. And that's where we're putting the human lens on a heavenly lens. Yeah. And that's where faith is involved in all this. Election and predestination are taught in Scripture. Um, the more important application to me is why did He choose me? Yeah. And how do I now? How do I now live? Because if you come to grapple with your salvation, you aren't better. You didn't deserve it. You're not smarter. You're not better looking. You're not you know, whatever. Right. Fill in the blank. You're a person that deserved hell, like everybody. Why did He choose me? So. Election and predestination should drive us to how, how do I humbly serve Christ? How do I share Christ with people that need to know him? How do I love the people that are far from Jesus? Because that's the nature of God's choice. He loved them and he chose them. So 
we're enjoined to pray for people. We're enjoined to share the gospel. We're enjoined mm-hmm. to make disciples, mm-hmm. to, to share Christ, to do the work of the evangelist. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say we sit back and fold our arms and say the elect are going to heaven. Right. On the other hand, not everyone will respond. So yeah. this can't be fate or determinism. Right. Because in humanity, you know, then we get in this whole ball of wax going, well, then what do I do? Well, you respond by faith. And again, not a perfect illustration, but the arch is the best way I've ever heard it explained. Before we come to Christ, the offer is for everyone. After we come to Christ, back to hitting our head again. Wow, he chose me. I didn't deserve this. Now, how do I live appreciating God's grace? Well, we have several more questions in our queue, but I think we should take a look at one more. And for our listeners, maybe this is getting your juices flowing and you're thinking, okay, I've got some questions now. I've got, I've got a bone to pick with you, Michael Easley. Let's talk about such Just and such. Just get in line. Get in line. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if that's the case, I want to tell you our number right now. It's 615-281-9694. You can call anytime, day or night. We had... Two phone calls come in last night around midnight. I thought, man, people are thinking deep thoughts around midnight. Um, <laughs> it goes straight to a voicemail. You're not going to wake anybody up. We love to hear your call. So let's take one more question from Ryan. Hey, Michael. This is Ryan. My question for you today uh, was posed to me by a few friends um, recently. And it was um, pretty simple. You know, why do... Why do people say that God will provide all the time uh, with money, and home, resources, things like that? Yet we all know, you know, homeless Christians uh, exist, and 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 you know, why aren't they provided for? Um, sort of transitioning off of that, like you know, why why doesn't why doesn't God show up with money for those uh, for, for these people, but others do? Um, other individuals, people giving money, things like that. Um, so that's the question. Hopefully, uh, I, I also sent I sent you a direct message on Instagram too. So, trying to be uh, a uh, classic millennial. Ryan, great question. Let's first talk about Christian vocabulary or Christian nomenclature. We've got these uh, these words that Christians use. Remember the cartoon handy years ago that it was, uh, uh, I'm delivered, uh, <laughs> you know, all these different things. And, and we had this whole, there was a whole like um, Babylon B type thing about the words that people use that Christ, only Christians understand. And frankly, they don't understand them. So, but let's go back to talk about provide. I would say, uh, I would suggest the idea probably started with Abraham's offering. And let me just read a couple of verses from Genesis 22, verses 6 and following. This is where Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering and puts it on Isaac's back. And he has the fire and a torch, obviously, and a knife. And they walk on together. Um, And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father. This is chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 7. My father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the wood, the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself, interesting, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then they walk on together. And, of course, you know the story where he's uh, you know, tied his son. He secured him on a pile of wood on, a, on, a, on an altar made of stones. And he's about to slice his neck open with a knife and bleed his son and then burn him. And the angel of the Lord appears and says, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. 
He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then the passage goes forward. They find the ram in the thicket. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Now, some of us have heard the term Jehovah Jireh Uh or Yahweh Jireh. That's Uh the Hebrew of the Lord will provide. So that would that's the beginning of this phrase. Now, whether Christians mean that today or not, but I'm just going back to the text to say that's probably where we picked up on this nomenclature. In first Corinthians ten thirteen we have a similar provision. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape and so forth. So we could look at a number of these provisions. So let's talk about the theology of God providing. He provided an offering. He provides a way out of temptation. Now, to your point, when we see homeless people, poor people, and let me add, mentally ill people, terminally ill people, yeah. uh, people that have made really poor choices in their life, people who've been, uh, you know, had, had injustices occur to them, maybe no fault of their own, maybe their own fault. And we see a lot of broken humans and we say, why doesn't God fix them? Why doesn't the Lord provide? Again, I'm going to go back to a human lens versus a heavenly lens. We are fallen people in a fallen context, broken creatures in a broken world. So bad things happen to bad people. There's no such thing as good people. (laughs) We're all bad. We all deserve hell. So we we exist in this. Now, let's turn the heat up. When you and I see these people, when we see individuals who have needs, who are poor, who are homeless, who are struggling, the Christian community does have an opportunity to help some of those people and meet some of those needs. But understand uh, the old axiom, you can give someone a fish or you can teach them a fish. And teaching a person to be personally responsible, to overcome issues and get help, all that's important. But our goal is to produce disciples, not just be a social club or social workers that will never uh, resolve the poor issues. Christ himself said, the poor we will always have with us. That, that, that's not an excuse to do nothing, but less that we overcompensate and try to do everything. You, you'll never stem the tide. So there's a balance there for each person your gifting, your calling, your passion. How can God use you and me? So let's go back to your question. Uh, God's not going to provide for all of our ills. We're all going to die. We're all going to be sick at time. Mm-hmm. We're all going to have you know bad things happen to us. Does that mean God short-shrifted us? Nope. We're broken creatures in a broken world. And faith means living faithfully in spite of that. Even when the Lord may not, quote, provide the way I'd sure like him to, for some of the things you mentioned and some of the things that I'd like to have. Hmm. That's good. Well, if you've got a question for Dr. E, you can call us at 615-281-9694, and we look forward to hearing your question. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.